Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Alex Newman. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good, thanks, John. How are you? I'm all right, yeah. And uh, Mark Robinson. How are you doing, Mark? Well, thanks, John. Yeah, we've had some mic issues today, so Mark's sitting over the control room. We're going to talk today about Alex, Alex, your cover feature, yep. which is about contrarianism. It is. Everyone's a contrarian. Everyone's a contrarian. Most people are not. Possibly. Or maybe everyone's a contrarian. Maybe everyone's a contrarian. But it's an interesting idea that essentially to be a contrarian is it's kind of like being a hedge fund manager. A little bit, yeah. And uh, the idea of this uh, feature partly is that you don't have to pay the fees that hedge fund managers uh, require or the £1 million uh, account uh, minimum account spend to to get an account with some of these guys. So basically, we're going to teach teach readers how to be their own hedge fund manager by yes. being a little bit contrarian. Or offer a few ideas that um, hedge fund managers we know take. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's talk before we do that about the the kind of big stories of the week that we have. And and Robbo, you're you kind of wrote the big story of the week, which is Rolls Royce. And, yeah. and in fact, you got there a day before the actual news appeared. Yeah, I think the um, the job cuts that were announced this morning they've been uh, they've been flagged for a, a few months now. At least analysts have been expecting them. They were actually a bit higher, weren't they, than uh, than the a figures that were being higher. bandied about? Yeah, another seven hundred jobs, I think. But the figures aren't exactly it and that's going to take over about two years and i think from what i've read anyway this is likely to be uh, white collar workers rather than um, anyone from the engineering floor but this was always the strategy i think warren east when he came in had said there were basically too many managers uh, at rolls royce well exactly uh, and uh, and the point is that with it, it may have been accelerated because of the changes in accounting treatment and the way that uh, rolls royce have been uh, booking their revenues in the past um, effectively hit a multitude of sins that's one theory at any rate but uh, but now this has become all the more obvious and so it's uh, increased the necessity as well so this is probably the first step along a whole road of uh, rationalization there's, there's also technical issues uh, increased digitalization within the company as well uh, that extends to the production floor so there's a whole raft of uh, uh, measures there i mean the interesting news this week i mean you know we, we actually are not are not talking about the job cuts in in the piece you've written we're talking about some problems they've had with the engineering particularly on their trent 1000 engines yeah this has persisted uh, for some time it was linked to a, a problem with a compressor and now it's been found in at least two models i think which has uh, led to discussions with boeing and flight regulators internationally as well and they're having to look at a secondary fleet which amounts to 166 aircraft i think in, in a sense uh, a company like rolls royce can expect these type of issues but it's just unfortunate that it's come at the same point where they're really pressing ahead with uh, the rationalization of the business and as i point out in the article and our readers will be aware of this too that uh, the main competitors in the space, GE and Pratt and Whitney, have also had technical problems this year, and I think it's just an avoid- unavoidable uh, you know, element of uh, the aviation industry. Indeed, I mean it's quite quite a sort of disturbing thought that you uh, you conclude within in the piece, which is that mechanical failures are an unavoidable in- instance of the aviation industry. You don't want to be hearing that as a flyer. Well, they well this is tr- this is true, but I mean it, it's it's this reality. It's um, no different from the automotive industry, uh, except the only difference being your thirty seven thousand feet in the air when something goes wrong. I mean, it's not, it, this is making the problem out to sound more serious than it actually, I mean, it is a serious problem, but but it, it's it's to do with the durability of components, so actually they, they're not lasting as long as they expected. Well, exactly. To. I mean, there's major cost issues there for, for, for Boeing and, and users, and, and plus Rolls-Royce too, so they, they want to get on, on top of this. Is there going to be a cost to them? To this, uh, uh, well, there must be. You would... there, there's, going, there's going to be a, uh, a cost, but um, I don't think we've really crystallised that yet. It's interesting, actually, some of the... Um, 
some of the changes that uh, Warren East is introducing on the digital front as well involve beefing up the, the initial testing process for parts and also um, in terms of maintenance after sales as well. And over time, you would imagine this won't only improve the quality or the quality of the service offering from Rolls-Royce, which is critical, but it'll also um, lead to improvements in unit profitability if they can avoid these type of issues. Yeah, because because the way the biz- this business works, as, as I understand it from when I, used to, when I used to cover it, is that the engines are almost sold at a loss leader because yeah. the aftermarket contracts are, are so profitable. And this is why they've had the, the issues with the IFRS. Yeah, that's it. And they, they may have to change it. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I've spoken to Algae Hall about this at, at length, and uh, neither of us are quite sure. How, well, neither of neither of us were quite sure how to go about valuing the group. But hopefully when the dust settles from these accounting changes and we get some regular treatment, we, we might find that, that that model changes for them as well. They might have to front load a, a few more of uh, the costs. Okay. What do we think about the shares though? I mean, what's the bottom line? Oh, they've, they've had a good run recently from, from what were some pretty horrible lows a couple of years back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's done a good job since he's, since he's come in and, and the general market sentiment uh, has improved. And I, I don't think this, um, the issue with the, the, the Trend 1000 engines is going to change that. It's just stalled it briefly. But at the moment, uh, you know, I, I put my hands up. I, I really don't know how to go about valuing the company. I haven't done for an, a number of years. And we've looked at it very closely. But hopefully, um, as I say, once the dust settles, we, we might get a clearer indication. So we're sticking at hold for the time being? Yeah, for the time being, yeah. Okay. Lots of other interesting stuff in the news this week. We've had a few pretty pretty hideous profit warnings, um, XL Media being one of them, which is covered in both the news section and John Rosier's portfolio, uh, his, his private investor diary. It was part of that. BT has uh, culled its boss. And as Algie concludes, dividend is probably going to follow. I think we've discussed that uh, on numerous occasions on this podcast. We also discussed in my set a few weeks ago, and I said I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Of course, they've now had a takeover <laughs> offer. Say la vie. You've covered something interesting in your taking stock column this week, which is the Saudi Aramco IPO with the long-awaited, the long-trailed Saudi Aramco IPO, which Alex, you've actually covered as well in the past. Yeah, yeah, we've had we've had some changes this week on the regulatory front, which are making that look more like it's it's a possibility for the London market. Robbo, what, what have you written about this week on that score? Well, they've um, it's widely expected they've made changes or made a special accommodation within their premium uh, listing service, whereby it'll facilitate the listing of uh, basically companies that are controlled by sovereign wealth funds. With a very limited uh, free float. Because it's less than 5% that we're talking about here, isn't it, potentially? Well, well the, nominally, there's still a 25% limit on that. But uh, if the FCA are, um, are satisfied that the initial public offering uh, has sufficient liquidity or, or market size, I think £100 million uh, pounds is the limit within the hands of shareholders at the initial... They'll waive that five, that, that 25% ruling. Yeah, because I mean, Saudi Aramco is, is an absolutely vast company. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're talking, I mean... A trillion. trillion yeah, a tr- trillion? Oh, up, upwards of a trillion. I mean, I, I've, I think um, Crown Prince Salman, initially, when, when he made the initial announcement, said that the, the valuation was uh, 2 to 2.5 trillion, but... That was when oil prices were lower than they are now. And I mean, that, that was, uh, most analysts scoffed at that. I think the uh, consensus within the West, anyway, was something in the region of 1 to maybe 1.7 trillion, depending on who you, you're looking at. But e- either way, it's, it, it's stratospheric, really. It essentially becomes the biggest listed company in the world. 
Yes, which, yes. which is uh, which is extraordinary. So it won't affect. Uh, I mean, what, what I think in an earlier piece, Alex or myself uh, read about uh, the, the effect that it could have on uh, mandated uh, funds, but it won't actually form part of the uh, the FTSE 100. So uh, that's no longer an issue in terms of regulation. It's the same. Uh, it's, it's the same deal in terms of uh, preemption rights, which will. Um, a few people would have been slightly nervous about that, I guess. But it's the same company, ultimately. And I think, Alex, you, you I mean, you had some, uh, you had some issues around what, what was being listed here, what was being talked about. Uh, yes, yeah, vis a vis- vis- uh, Sally Ramco. Yes, or, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, uh, I mean, I suppose the caveat to all of this is uh, retail investors can't, I don't think, can always deal in these these uh, securities, but. These global depository receipts, or G, you know, so-called GDRs, which are listed on London already, there are corporate governance deficits already within companies listed in London. If you, if you look at some of the, you know, the Russian, essentially, you know, so Rosneft and Gazprom, some of their securities traded in London. You, know, you, you could say, you know, this is essentially a, an extension of the Russian state and the Russian foreign policy as well. So, you know, it's not like London has been entirely shut off to instances of companies which have large state control within them. Yeah. And this is an extreme example of this, I would agree. And they're not well. companies that we tend, I mean, we tend to cover as a matter of course in the Investors yeah. Chronicle, these, these GDRs, I mean. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, I think you have to be listed as a, a professional investor for, for some of them and it's, it's complicating you know some liquidity issues as well um, I think that's probably how Saudi Ramco is going to end up being listed anyway I'm not 100% sure this is going to be a, uh, a retail investor stock so it's coming to market but you can't buy it <laughs> but I mean it remains to be seen I mean they'll probably fangle the, the rules again um, between now and IPO and, and I guess Robert that's that's the kind of issue that you, you take with this that messing around with the regulatory structure that under Marcus is not necessarily I, I think you described a, a Savile Row regulatory regime well, exactly. Yeah, how much money have you got depends on the, the suit you get. Yeah, and I mean, there must have been uh, pressure coming down from uh, Whitehall as well in terms of the, the aftermath of uh, the Brexit vote too, because obviously uh, the government would be very keen to uh, maintain London's primacy in international markets and this would sort of add to it, I guess. Although I, I guess part of the reason or perhaps the core reason why London... Uh, has established this is because of uh, probity in the markets here, uh, relatively speaking, uh, and the fact that you know London does provide uh, equitable markets across a, a range of uh, financial instruments. And if you suddenly start making compensatory arrangements for entities just because of their their size and uh, and prestige, I think you're going down a, a slippery path there. Yeah, and. I mean, obviously, the big, big uh, competitive threat to London in, in terms of landing this IPO was New York. New York. And you, you conclude that they may, that might not be an issue anymore, given how the, the regulatory authorities out there are, are looking at the oil and gas sector. Well, well exactly. Um, and plus, the, the city authorities there, are, yeah, the city authorities are um, going after the five uh, large Western majors for compensation. I don't know how to do this. I mean, this is like sort of big tobacco, big oil now. Um, and the existential threat uh, through uh, climate change. Now, I'm, I'm not sure how that would play out in the courts, but it would obviously, uh, it wouldn't have uh, played very well in, in Riyadh. Yeah, which I guess, Alex, is, I mean, it goes back to the whole stranded assets debate, um, which we, we have talked about a lot. Big oil has some attractions, especially at a high oil price, but also lots of concerns. Yes, yeah, and I suppose the reason anyone considering buying into an Aramco flotation would be likely for uh, a sort of, uh, an annuity-like dividend 
uh, stream. But for how long that would last? I mean, the, the argument is quite interesting that the likes of Carbon Trackers, this research group which sort of ranks the stranded asset components within any oil majors, they, they've sort of put forward the argument that... Um, that an Aramco is actually will have fewer stranded assets than the likes of an Exxon or Shell because their oil is so cheap to produce yeah, yeah. that um, in effect they become the lowest cost quartile, which is should be protected by the residual need for oil and gas in the in the coming decades. So in essence, as oil becomes less valuable, you go for the easier stuff to get to. Yeah, and as Saudi and in Saudi Arabia, it's literally bubbling out of the ground. Absolutely, yeah, you can just dig it out with a with a spade. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you know the the greening of of global uh, energy markets could somehow result in Saudi Arabia as, as a, an investment champion. Um, I don't know. I mean, it it may be that's how it plays out. I've got a feeling this story's got a very long way to run. It has, yeah, yeah. Like we years I, worth of coverage. Yeah, I think the IPO was meant to, meant to have happened this year, but um, who, who knows if it will even be next year. Indeed, indeed. Should we turn to the cover feature? Why not? Thank you, Mark. Let's turn to the cover feature, which is about contrarianism. Yeah. And, I mean, let's talk about the general observations you have of contrarianism mm. that, that you kick off the feature with yeah so uh a starting point i suppose would be everyone's very w- worried about valuations aren't they i mean they, they always are but particularly now after multi-year runs in equity and bond markets where do you place your money if you're you know we're in a tightening interest rate environment uh, what is the knock-on effect of quantitative easing unwinding gonna be the u.s raised rates yesterday exactly yeah so you know it's, it's very timely from from a yield perspective but also the fragility of of markets and that's the starting point here though it should caveat by saying that this feature is not it's not about picking stocks which are contrarian plays well you you have a short portfolio yeah which is is i mean the short portfolio picked out the 10 most shorted stocks or what we can sort of determine as the most shorted stocks listed in london although the contrarian would be buying them of course. exactly yeah <laughs> so so a contrarian would be buying them and interestingly pets at home which is as far as i could see the the most shorted uh, stock by proportion of its stock out on loan made it onto uh algae's a contrarian value stock scream last time he put it together uh, last July. These, are, I mean, these are obviously highly, highly volatile stocks where um, often you can see a ninety percent jump or you know a sort of half halving in value in, mm. in, in the blink of an eye. So I, I would actually point uh, listeners and readers in the direction of those stock screens, which have done really well over the last five years, for an idea of how some of the metrics you might look at for contrarian value plays. This features more on you know, some of the big themes which dominate financial markets at the moment yeah. and, and, and the hedges you could take against the risks attached. Indeed. So basically, you've got a portfolio of shares, yeah. which you presumably most people are long, they yeah. expect to do well. <clears throat> but there are these big threats that, that are hanging over us. And what you've offered here are four ideas yeah. of, of how you might introduce some some kind of insurance into your portfolio. Let's talk about a couple of them. Sure. Don't want to give sure. them all away, of course. Yeah. I suppose the first one I'd, I'd point to is, I mean, the, when we talk about uh, valuations, it's often the S&P 500 and US stocks are cited as the pinnacle of overinflated asset class. And a big kicker to to the S&P 500 and, and US stocks at the end of last year and continued in this, ma- this massive bull run at the start of this year was the tax cut. We've taken a sort of da- a downside look at what has been billed, obviously, by the White House and by Congress as uh, an enormous boost to the US economy. And there's a few reasons why why this could actually be a very, very bearish event for the US economy. First one being that, um, so this is the corporate tax rate, which has dropped from 35 to 21%. What, what are all the companies doing with this? Uh, they're not really giving the money back to uh, 
to their workers. They're not really investing an enormous amount in capital intensive projects. They are buying back shares in droves and paying out dividends. Which is kind of what they've been doing for some time anyway. Absolutely. But this is, this is really t- turbocharged if you, if you look at some of the, the research into, into uh, corporate earnings since then. I mean, you've got a nice graph here which shows that the PE ratio on the S&P 500 has actually dropped. Yeah. That's a mirage, potentially. Yeah, potentially. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not surprising that that's dropped because 14 percentage points have potentially been added to their margins uh, with a, with corporate tax rate drops so considerably. The danger to all of, of that is that it's arguable whether this is trans, going to translate into wage creation in, in the US. It also creates a big additional bid for all these stocks. So we have another enormous amount of buying momentum in, in the shares. That could reduce the corporate credit spread, so the, the difference between the, the cost of borrowing for these companies and US Treasury yield. That could almost send a signal to the Federal Reserve that, that um, actually the financial conditions are still too loose, could accelerate. We saw you know, interest rate yesterday accelerate interest rate rises in the course of the year and in 2019 as well. But it may not be that there's actual strong real growth in the economy. This could, this could just be sort of a, a phantom. And already we have some predictions of recession in 2020 uh, in the US. Okay. So yeah, so it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an alternative take on uh, where the US stock market might be heading. But not a bad thing to insure yourself against. Yeah. I mean, it's had absolutely. a good run. Yeah. It's going to happen sometime. Yeah, and, and so how do we insure ourselves? How do we hedge? Yeah, well one this? one option is one option is to take out an option, a put option, which uh effectively means that you can uh if say the S&P 500 is at 2800 points at the moment, you could take out put options which give you the right to sell at that level in say 2 years time if there is a recession and if there is a recession you would expect the S&P 500 to fall. It's a, it's a, an alternative way of of doing it, which means you don't have to short the index, which potentially that could result in much greater losses if the index continues to climb. Yeah, especially if you do it through a, a spread bet or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, interesting. Let's. Uh, so we've got four scenarios. Yeah, four pick, scenarios. Pick another yeah. one. Let's talk about. Let's talk about gold. Yeah, sure. We don't talk about gold enough. Yeah, we've. We, I don't think we have in it in a while. No, we haven't. Gold. So another one which I won't go into too much detail that we touched on is the the risks of the growth behind China, which has sort of been the engine of global economic growth. In the long term, both Donald Trump and probably China want to see their respective currencies weaken. It's helpful for governments from a trade perspective to see their currencies weaken. And if you look at a, a long uh, sort of 25 year view of gold as a currency, it's done a lot better than all the major currencies. So it's it's more than three times what it was 25 year, years ago against sterling dollar, euro, yen, and, and some, one. Some of that is speculative. Some of that has yeah. been speculative buying, but some of this is kind of the, me- the, the kind of inflationary mechanisms that, that, go, that relate gold to currencies. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of inflation and, and, and also uh, in interest rates, one of the reasons why gold relatively has gone sideways the last few years is because everyone's expecting that interest rates are going to go up. And with it, you, you may as well hold 10-year uh, US Treasury bonds because that gives you a yield, whereas gold is no one's liability, but it's also, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an income payer. That said... Um, it hasn't gone down, though. It, okay, it so. hasn't gone down, yeah. I think it's actually held up quite, quite well over the last uh, few months relative to I- expectations. So there's, but there's, there are a couple of reasons to believe that gold is, is a useful hedge against, against other currencies over the next few years. One is the obvious point is that you've got geopolitical risk. And rather than point to any one specific 
source of geopolitical risk or you know be it trade wars or war in the middle east or whatever it's that with geopolitical risk and and you know if it is heightened or even perceived to be heightened that delays investment decisions for capital and because it's a very highly liquid market it creates a bid for gold because if you're going to put your money somewhere there's going to be a large portfolio or the large number of investors global investors who are going to want to store their money somewhere where they believe risk is is lowered so you know even if none of these geopolitical disasters occur there is arguably a growing case for gold on the geopolitical front so so, so it's quite interesting because you would argue you could argue easily that the last two three years have seen hugely heightened geopolitical risk not least in brexit and and other problems in the eurozone like Italy most recently, and of course Trump yeah. and the threat of trade wars. So, so that there must be people who are buying gold in light of those risks, and yet the stock markets are rising too. Yeah, which explains perhaps why gold hasn't fallen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But has but has traded sideways instead. There's yeah. enough buyers who are worried about geopolitical risk. Absolutely. And if you speak to you know you speak to the gold trading funds, whenever there's a dip in gold as well, interestingly, retail investors particularly will will pile in. So they're very good at reading the any dips in the market. So I suppose from a from a technical standpoint, you'd say that there is a you know there's a support line there, and at mm. the moment it does not appear to be dropping below thirteen hundred dollars. Even though, yeah, yesterday we just had uh, rates go up again. The other yeah the other point is long term there are some big concerns for the dollar. Not only the afore- the aforementioned trillion dollar hole now in the in the in the government's budget, uh, uh, which which is. Uh, be brought about by the uh, by the tax cut but also the current account balance and whether or not you know the the trade war that uh donald trump is sort of uh is, is is inching towards or maybe just threatening will change some of that balance those are two big concerns for investors in the dollar long term and if those shortfalls both one in the government budget and two in the current account balance aren't addressed long term that's going to concern investors and that the dollar and gold tend to move inversely to inversely, one another yeah, yeah absolutely so so the the hedge is simple yeah buy gold buy gold yeah 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 bit physical or etf depending on your on your sort of your doomsday armageddon uh, and, preferences and, and the strength of your safe <laughs> absolutely yeah 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 or security guards um, um i mean and actually a lot of etfs are backed by physical gold yeah anyway so yeah. so it is is essentially the same thing yeah all right well, there's two more scenarios. There. Yes, but, which uh, will leave people to buy and read. Yeah, and I, I guess I guess you know the the point is that actually some of this doomsday uh, stuff that we're talking mm. about may not come to pass. Absolutely, but yeah. but this is how you make sure that if it does come to pass, you have some protection against it. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, it's just a way of insu- adding a bit of insurance to your portfolio, which you know, as we often beat the drum for, should be you know diversified between uh, various securities. But you know, if if you are a big equity holder then you should set aside something for the risks to those uh, those stocks Absolutely. basic asset allocation principles yeah which is uh, james norrington's favorite favorite uh, subject although this week james has done the economics page and he's talking about trump's reaction to mm. the u.s trade deficit mm. you could almost say he's become a bit of a cheerleader for, uh, for trump this week he'll yeah. hate me for saying that <laughs> <laughs> thank you alex no it's fascinating it's like an episode of Billions. Um, right, uh, plenty more in the magazine this week. As I as I alluded to, we have uh, for the second feature, John Rosier's uh, Private Investor Diary. One in, one out there, uh, out of Europe into something in the UK, uh, which is quite a niche, interesting, special situation. 
You mentioned LG stock screens. This week is looking at momentum for overseas earnings shares in the UK. Whilst in the uh, sex focus, we look at retail and uh, whether whether this really is the rock bottom and whether there are actually any bargains in this terrible, terribly troubled market. Mm. Even, the, even the good companies are getting whacked at the moment. Yeah. Lots in the personal finance and fund section, which they will talk about on their podcast next week. And actually a reasonably busy week for results. Yeah, it never ends. Well, it's hopefully going to end next week. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, thank you, Alex, and thank you, Robbo, uh, and thank you all for listening. Uh, how to be a contrarian, why you need original thinking in your portfolio. Pick it up and all good news agents. We'll be back again next week. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.